First Corinthians chapter three. I started speaking on uh, Christians standing before the judgment seat of Christ to receive rewards last week. I want to uh, develop that more closely today. What it means, what it doesn't mean. I touched upon these the subject last week. But we're going to start with Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I will read to chapter 4, verse 5, and then make my comments. Starting in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, and as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Can you say, but only God gives the growth? Could you say that? He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's fields, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than what is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that is anyone built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys a temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are a holy temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Chapter 4. This is how you should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of men's heart. Then each one will receive his commendation or praise from God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for Paul's teachings, Lord. We thank you for opening up the door of what it means to serve you faithfully, Father God, out of sincerity of heart, that you do judge the motives and intentions of our hearts, Father God. And that there will be a day when we'll stand before you and to give an account of what took place within our heart. It's not what we did, Father, but why we do anything for you that you're concerned with, Lord. So, Father God, come, open up our minds and heart to understand what Paul is saying. And, Father God, give us a desire to want to stand before you on that great day and say, praise you, God. We did it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As we spoke about last week, about eternal rewards, uh, this last week we spoke about the believer before the judgment seat of Christ, 
what it was and what it's not. And it's important to understand that because we hear the word judgment and we think, well, you know, we're going to be condemned, you know. Uh, if you do feel that way, it's because maybe you don't understand the gospel fully yet. Uh, the cross is our condemnation. Christ took everything on the cross, every sin, every failure, every broken law, every transgression has been fully taken care of at the cross for a believer. Perfect love, the Bible says in 1 John 4, has cast out all fear. Fear has to do with judgment. The believer from this moment now, even now, until throughout all of eternity, even when we stand before the Lord on that day, there is no fear at all involved. We have to know that. The Holy Spirit, only He can witness that truth to you. I couldn't convince you. It is not my job to convince you. I wish I could convince you. If I can convince you of that truth, someone else can convince you it's not true. It is the Holy Spirit that drives that home into your hearts and into my hearts. There is no fear of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. But we spoke about what it is. We are going to stand. Paul speaks about it three times of standing before Christ in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans chapter 14. And we're going to stand before him. Even in Revelation 20, when it speaks about standing before the white throne, it's talking about all human beings. When a young believer stands there, he stands before the judge of the universe and finds only condemnation. When we as children, we stand there before our Father, we stand there before our Savior. Before our brother, Jesus Christ. To receive forgiveness and mercy and eternal life. But when a Christian stands before God, it's not a judgment, it's an evaluation. Very important for us to understand that. And the text brings that out and I'll get into that later on. It's an evaluation of the Christian's life. Of the sincerity of their faith that is expressed in good works. James says, how do I know you have faith? I'll show you my works. I'll show you my faith by what I do. When we stand before the Lord, he will judge, he will evaluate what we have done for him. Which in turn really looks at the intentions and motives of our heart because it's not about what we do. It's why we do it. And it's important for us to know, because this has everything to do with the rewards Paul is talking about here. We spoke about the reward of being a greater... I spoke about this. Let me, let, me, let me clarify something. I spoke about the reward of being a greater quality of eternal life. It's a subjective reward which differs from believer to believer of how he has lived his life. Now, I want you to know something. The example I used, I borrow from a couple of people, a couple of theologians. And it's one of a symphony. How everybody's at the symphony and everybody's enjoying the music. They're all hearing the same thing. They're all seeing the same thing. They're all enjoying the same thing. But some people enjoy it with a greater intensity. It's subjective. They know there's everybody smiling. Everybody's enjoying it. But some people seem to enjoy it at a greater intensity. I always understood that as what it means to have rewards in heaven. I want you to know that. I read that many years ago. I never searched the matter out. But it stuck with me. And I said, you know, son, that's a, that's a good interpretation. You know? It's not like I can, you see me better than you. Or I see you less than me. Has, we're all enjoying God together. We're all enjoying Christ together. But there's a certain subjective intensity to each one according to how we live our Christian life. I, I thought that was a good interpretation. But i got to be honest, over the last week on the further... Study and reflection, I want you to know I've moved away from that position, so I want you to know something. We're always learning. I've always held on to that position because it spoke life to me. It gave me some sort of understanding of this abstract concept of standing before the Lord and being rewarded. But I believe I've come across something much greater understanding, and I'll explain myself as I go along. When I first read this interpretation, it brought great insight into how it would be, though I never gave it much great thought until I started this sermon series. Uh, many good theologians uh, from both uh, all Christian camps hold to this view, but I believe it greatly diminishes the integrity of God's grace. This, this subjective intensity, some have it a little more than others. 
let me explain myself as I go along. I'll, I'll do this from a conceptual point of view first, and I want you to follow with me. The concept of believe is either adding to or diminishing from a certain quality in heaven seems to be unbiblical. Let me say it again. It's important for all of us. The concept of believe is either adding to their intensity of heaven or diminishing it, depending on how we lived here, flies in the face of God's grace. Heaven in scripture is defined as perfection for all, paid for, paid for by Christ for all. Christ brings the intensity of heaven into our life, not me. I can't add to perfection, neither can you. I can't even diminish it. Christ paid for it. It has to be the same for all or for none. I want to read a couple of verses of scripture here. Starting in uh, the same text. Chapter 13, a love chapter many of us know. Paul's talking about the perfect, but when the perfect does come, the partial will be passed away. He goes on in the 15th chapter. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, also are those who are from heaven. Just as we were born in the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Blessed who is Jesus Christ. So we see here, Paul is not, the, the image of Jesus Christ for all of us is the same. There is no diminishing of the intensity. There's no more adding to the intensity. It is absolutely perfect all the way. Listen to the way Peter says it in First Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, he's talking about heaven, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, it's kept in heaven for you. That's our salvation. He goes on to talk later on in that verse about salvation. So the point is, is that it is perfect for all of us. It's not less perfect or more perfect for anybody. It is the same. That's what Christ has purchased for us. If there was a distinction in intensity of heaven about these rewards, because I want you to know most of the body of Christ, if I took a poll now, how many people would think there's rewards in heaven for us? I can tell you right now, that, that is most of Protestant teachers, even Roman Catholic teachers. Most Protestant teachers, especially coming out of, of, of uh, uh, Pentecostal backgrounds, really lean heavy upon this. But not just Pentecostal backgrounds, many Baptist backgrounds, many Presbyterian backgrounds, many backgrounds point towards this receiving some kind of eternal rewards. But if that's the case, then there would be distinctions made in heaven between believers. This really seems unbiblical. That there's any distinction in heaven. We can almost say the have and the have nots. It can't be. So I'm talking about this from a conceptual point of view now. It can't be. It flies in the face of the integrity of God's grace for all sinners. You know what that means? None of us deserve it. So now I'm going to go to heaven and get a little more from someone else because I did something a little more? No. From a historical background, I want to go through this text and explain myself. Paul is writing to the Corinthians over certain matters that threatened the church. And what threatened the church was earthly wisdom. He calls the wisdom of the world. He called it in our text. God's going to catch them in the wisdom, their earthly wisdom. He catches the wise in their foolishness. Earthly wisdom, pride in the form of favoritism, social status, along with physical appearance and the ability to speak well and hold the audience captive with their rhetorical skills and powers, had entered into the Corinthian church and has taken over. It's taken over from the wisdom and power of God. Do you know what the wisdom and power of God is in 1 Corinthians? It's Christ and Him crucified. 
That's it. So this earthly wisdom with physical appearance and the ability to speak well and hold audiences captive in this, in this favoritism of Paul, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow uh, uh, Peter or Cephas, I'm following someone else. All this is entered into the church and it's basically trying to choke out the wisdom and power of God in the simple gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. As a means of building the church up from the foundation It's being cast aside for these earthly ways, which Paul calls wood, hay, and straw. I want to stop right there. Do you think this has anything to do with us today? It has everything to do with us today. The church was torn in two. Some were following Paul, some were following Peter, some were following Apollos. Uh, Anyone who else that, as long as they looked good, they sounded good and had the wisdom of earthly, the appearance of earthly wisdom, they would follow them. And what happened, they were following men, remember? Don't follow men. And when you follow men, you, you forget to follow who? Who is the foundation? They're getting away from the foundation over here. You know what happens to a building when you don't follow the foundation? It eventually falls down doesn't stand well this is what's going on in the church the earthly wisdom has entered into the church, the culture has entered into the church, it's against this background here that the first four chapters are written and where we find our teaching where we find our teaching are standing before Christ to give an account of our service to him, that's, that's why it's important just to take out one verse of scripture and say well I'm going to teach about you know, a believer standing before Christ to receive their reward, I want to understand what drove Paul to write that a believer is going to stand before Christ what drove him to say that what drove Paul to write that what drove him well earthly wisdom came in people were being deceived the foundation was being covered up. People were following men. They weren't following Christ anymore. All these ill motives have entered into the church. And Paul is writing from that perspective. If you read 2 Corinthians 5.10, it's the same similar lines of reasoning. So when it comes to those texts where rewards for believers are mentioned, like the one tonight, or an accounting is mentioned, The background is of the utmost importance for understanding this future event. So if you and I want to grasp what it's going to be like to stand before the Lord on that day, the only way I can possibly come to a conclusion, a biblical conclusion that's going to warm my heart, I have to go back 2,000 years ago and I have to understand why Paul wrote it. And that's what I'm going to tell you now. Paul's point here is to show that when it comes to Christian ministry, whether from church leaders, that's what this text is about, church leaders, the principle applies to all Christians. Anybody who is a Christian, the principle applies of building up what's called here the temple. He uses three metaphors. He uses the temple, he uses the building, he uses agriculture. All three. You're God's field, you're God's building, you're God's temple. So whatever we do, and encouraging one another, that is what God's going to scrutinize. Why we do it. The most important activity in this process of building the temple, of God's building, of laboring in the field, the most important process is not what I do or what you do, but God who gives the increase. That's what Paul's point. Paul's saying, if, whether I sow in Apollos waters, whether I sow and I look like you have to remember something, the Corinthians attacked Paul. You know what they attacked him on? He didn't speak well. He didn't dress well. He didn't have a good stature. He didn't look like a preacher. But Apollos was, was, was uh, an eloquent, an eloquent speaker. He, he held the audience captive. And they gravitated towards him and they forgot about Paul. So what Paul's saying goes, whether it's me who looks like nobody or a palace that looks like somebody, it makes no difference. It's only God who gives the increase. 
Only God can change the human heart. Apollos can't do it, no matter how good he looks. I can't do it, no matter how bad I am. It makes no difference. It's God who gives the increase into the image of Christ. Let's not forget that. Only God can change the leopard spots. Only the gospel can do it. Only the foundation can do it. All the worldly wisdom in the world can't change a sinner into a saint. Everyone else is just used by God in a healthy way for his exclusive end. And that's his glory. When you understand that, there's no room for pride. There's no room for personal recognition. It is all about God. Paul does this first by identifying the church as what? Infants in Christ. You're mere babes in Christ. He started this church on milk. You know what that is? That's the gospel's saving message. That's the milk of the word. It's sanctifying truths on how to live under the power of grace. But this is proved almost unprofitable. Because he claims that they're still infants in Christ. You haven't grown at all. There's jealousy, there's strife, you're following Paul, he's following Cephas, he's following Apollos, you're not not concerned about everybody, you're not concerned about the, the building, you're not concerned about God's temple, you're not concerned about God's field, you're all about each other, you're following men, you're not following Christ no more, you're infants, I gave you milk, I didn't give you solid food, what happened? And it's not because of what they did, it's because of what they said. Someone says, I follow Paul. Someone says, I follow Cephas. Someone says, I follow Peter. Someone says, I follow Paulus. Divisions are starting to take place. A church with divisions is a powerless church. The church is about a bunch of sinners saved by grace, not who is and who's not. There's nobody better or greater in the church. It's only Jesus Christ. Because they're still acting like mere men. He says, you're still acting human. That means you're living like you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life. He's digressing from just infants in Christ to mere men. That's men without the Holy Spirit. Now he proceeds to illustrate from an agricultural metaphor how it all works out in God's economy. One man sows. No matter what he looks like, no matter what he sounds like, he's no better off or worse than anyone who waters it. All that matters in God's kingdom, it's his field, it's his building, no matter how unattractive it might look like, or simple and unsophisticated the message sounds like, it is God that makes it grow into the image of the foundation, Jesus Christ earthly wisdom does not bring about spiritual maturity nor can it bring salvation God's not concerned about our great opinions and our great ideas to drive the point home Paul used another metaphor from a building project he says I'm the wise master builder Paul is the wise master builder who laid a foundation and was called to watch over it and make sure it continued to grow. We would get from this word a wise master builder, we would get a general contractor. The general contractor is the one who looks over all the trades to make sure everything is on schedule and rising up to the top properly. Paul's job was to lay the foundation, take a step back, and make sure that everything was coming together for the glory of God. It's his field, it's his temple, it's his building. All the work has to go to this one end. It was Paul's job to lay the foundation as the apostle, missionary, evangelist. Now it's his job to watch over it when Apollos came and Peter came and other ministers came. His job was to watch over and make sure everything was being built up on the foundation. What is that foundation of Christ and Him crucified? It's repentance, it's faith, justification, redemption, sanctification, uh, 
the deity of Christ, the reality of the resurrection, uh, the reality of a second coming, uh, uh, the moral compass. It's, it's about love. These are the basic tenets of the Christian would have found when they first got saved. It's more or less what we do when we first got saved. These are the basic tenets. These are the, this is the gospel. That's the foundation. Others were to build on this foundation. This would be in both doctrine and the motives and intentions of their heart. This is important. It's not just about truth. Paul says, speak the truth in what? In love. So you, just to shout somebody, shout somebody down with the truth is not going to build them up. And just to love somebody in some sort of, uh, of feeling, some kind of sentiment, is not going to do nothing for them either. You have to have the truth spoken in love. That's how you build on the foundation. Doctrinally and spiritually. Others were to build on this foundation. This would be both doctrine and the motives and intentions that drove them. It was God's glory and the edif- church's edification or it was worldly influences or personal recognition. What was building the church? Was it for God's glory and the church's edification? Or was it worldly influences and personal recognition? That's what's going on here. He defines the difference between right doctrine and motive and wrong doctrine and wrong motives this way. You ready? Hey, Straw and wood is bad. Precious stones, gold and silver is good. Because when fire comes, that's God's scrutiny, that's God's judgment, that's God's evaluation. Stone, precious stones, silver and gold stand. Hay, straw, stubble, wood gets burned up immediately under God's evaluation. Wrong intentions, wrong motives, instantly will be shown on that day, as Paul says, and revealed with fire. Verses 13 and 14 are crucial. If Jackie can pull those up. He goes on to say, Each person's work will become manifest, meaning be revealed. For the day, that's the day when Christ comes back, we'll disclose it or reveal it. Because it will be revealed by fire, that's God's scrutiny. And the fire will test, God's scrutiny will test what sort of work each one has done. We find out in chapter 4 of why he has done it. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he receives a reward. And that is one of the main texts that preachers speak about rewards in heaven. On the day of Christ, or his second coming, or the judgment, non-believers, it's a judgment seat for non-believers, it's an evaluation for believers. Christ himself will evaluate our intentions, and why anybody did anything for his building, his temple, his field. It's the why. Oh, and by the way, don't miss this. He will judge all inactivity. Inactivity in the kingdom of God has motives. This is not everybody who's doing it. I can sort of like marginalize myself and hang around out there and over there and not get involved and not do much. And I have this inactivity going on and I'm sort of under the radar. You remember who did that? You remember your text? Do you remember... The man who received one pound, one talent, and he was to go do something for the kingdom of God. And he goes, oh, I know you're severe. I'll hide it. That's worldly wisdom. He could have put it in the bank, made an interest, but he hid it. I'll stay under the radar. Won't get too involved. I'll play it safe. That's a motive. That's an intention. Inactivity. In the Christian church, for a confessing Christian, is an intention and a motive. Reward in the Greek actually means a wage. It usually always used as a payment for services rendered. 
as it says here, according to each man's work. But we have to find out what is this work? What is this wage? We know what the work is. It's being active in Christian life, Christian ministry, Christian family, bringing the gospel outside to people. We know what's the wage. Why should God give me anything? This is the crux of the matter. Is it eternal rewards? Is this wage going to carry throughout my whole eternal relationship with God forever? Will my destiny in heaven be determined on my performance on earth? That should scare every one of us. Every one of us should be shaken right now. We all fail compared to Christ. Maybe between two believers you can say, well, you know, it's obvious. But understand something. When we stand before Christ, nothing's obvious. Because we all fail before the perfect sacrifice of Christ. We all fail his perfect obedience to the Father. We're all living, we're borrowers over here. We're debtors. How can eternity or the intensity of eternity be changed by something I do or don't do here? It can't be. That's my point. It can't. It can't carry over into eternity. So what is it then? And this is important. It's found in verse, chapter 4, verse 5. I'm going to read it. It seems that Paul gives an answer, at least a partial answer. And I'm going to be honest, at this point in my theology, I've got no problem saying, you know something? I want to learn more about this. I've got no problem saying this week what I, last week, I, I almost, I don't condemn what I said last week, but you know something? This is developing. I, I, the Bible doesn't give us all that much about heaven. There's very, very, when you take all the scriptures together, there's not all that much about standing before the Lord as a believer. So when we put it all together, it's, it develops. This, is a, this part is a developing theology for me. But Paul says this in verse 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before it's time. Don't evaluate anything, he's saying. Don't. Before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness. Because we don't know each other's hearts, do we? They don't know Apollos' heart. They didn't know Paul's heart. They didn't know Peter's heart. You don't know my heart. I don't know your heart. I don't know. We can evaluate fruit. But I don't know what the root is like. I don't know. So he says this. He will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. And will disclose. That means reveal the purposes of our heart then each one will receive his commendation from God, or I like the translation, his praise from God. That's the reward. That's the reward. It's not about, oh, look at Paul the Great, look at, look at Billy Graham in heaven, look at Moses, look, everybody's pushing their crowns at Christ. Nobody wants any recognition in heaven, because we shouldn't want any recognition here. Everybody's going to be in awe of the man, Christ Jesus, and his great humility and sacrifice for us. We're not going to be concerned about anything, but we're just we're in heaven. But yet, it says that he will receive his commendation or his praise from God. Why should God praise you or praise me for anything? I'm the debtor. I'm the sinner saved by grace. Why would God look at me and say anything? Paul seems to say this in a matter-of-fact way, meaning uh, that every Christian's conscience should be aware of this. He just says it. Then you re- oh yeah, sure, then you receive your praise from God. Not here, don't judge each other. When Christ comes, he'll let everybody know what's been going on in their hearts. He'll disclose the darkness and the motives and intentions and light what's going on. Don't sit in judgment of one another. He goes, I don't even judge myself. I'll wait for Christ to come and evaluate me. Not much is said about the rewards. Jesus in the gospel says a lot about the rewards. Just Matthew 5, 6, and 7 talks about being rewarded how you pray. Don't let your left hand know what you're doing. 
uh, we're going to be blessed because, you know, we suffered the same way the prophets did, and great is reward in heaven, and so on, and all this, and all this. You know, it's like, I can understand why people come out with a theology of reward. But everything that Jesus says with rewards in the Gospels can easily be interpreted as dealing with the final salvation of the saved and the unsaved. And not rewards for our performance among believers. <coughs> whose, whose performance was outstanding? Whose performance was perfect? Whose obedience? Whose love? Who never, who never had a moment of lapse in their faith? Who never got angry for a moment? Who never, who never just got angry at the sheep? What pastor never got, went crazy in his heart? Who, what evangelist never just got mad at somebody? We all do. What parent who loves their child doesn't get overly frustrated at times? We've all failed. It's important for us to know that. So we can understand what this reward means. It's not for our outstanding performance. Paul, of all people, says this, that he labored more strenuously than all the other apostles. Could you imagine he said that? So maybe he should get a higher place in heaven than the others. But you know what he said after that? He goes, but not me, but the grace of God in me. He doesn't point to himself. He takes no credit. It was all initiated by the grace of God. As sinful human beings, it's very natural to lean towards a reward for our labor of love of for Christ. It's easy to find ourselves in, oh yeah, sure, I believe it. I did it. But when I looked at it, and I studied it from the conceptual point of view, I'm saying, I've got to be out of my mind. My heaven's going to be better than your heaven because of something I did? Or my heaven's going to be less than Paul's for what he did? Did not Christ perfect pay a perfect redemption price for a perfect heaven for all of us? Of course he did. And to think that we live, and don't forget, all the cults and false religions thrive on performance religion activity. They thrive on that. The Christian can't even, if it sounds like works righteousness or works reward, we got to run for our life. We who know grace, we who know we're undeserving, we who know we're still of the flesh, we have to run away from anything that sounds like God's going to reward me according to my work. Yeah, sure, if I'm home and I'm praying, God will do something for me here. If I'm not letting my left hand know what my right hand is doing, yeah, God, God, he, he loves generosity. Yeah, he, he'll take care of you, but that's not going to carry over into heaven. And especially today in this performance-driven culture we live in, from the cradle to the grave, it's everything's on performance. Everything. We are constantly under the radar of someone else's evaluation, our own evaluation. We're not living up to the standard. We're not living up to my standard. We're not living up to, the, to our co-worker's standard, the boss's standard, the school teacher's standard, the gym standard, the TV standard, Hollywood standard, entertainment standard. We're not living up to it. And we live, am I wrong or right? Do we live in a performance-driven culture or not? We're constantly under the radar, trying to outperform everyone or at least keep up with others so we're not left out or overlooked at work or overlooked at school or overlooked by the coach or overlooked by the girl or overlooked by the guy. Even our family, we fight for the affections of our parents. Maybe I'm not going to get enough of them. You know, maybe the type A personality that's always smiling is going to get more love from the father than the one who's always like just just sort of melancholy am I right it enters into life it's there so it's only natural that this rewards enters in over our head like a pendulum like when do we get our act together now I just do what 
dependent on the thief did. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Just be merciful to me, God. That's what got me into the kingdom of God. You know that? That's all. That's what's going to make heaven sweet. Be merciful to me, the sinner. That's all. Our churches are driven by this. Let me have the affections of the pastors. Let me win the crowds over. Let me get in with the in crowd of church. Performance driven. There's motivation by guilt or fear or the kudos just flies in the face of God's all-inclusive eternal grace that can never be earned as a wage. It cannot. But at the same time, it would be uncharacteristic of God not to acknowledge faith. Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith it's impossible to please him, and whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he does reward those who seek him. So what it God does, if that's God's word, he does reward. So what is it? This is what I think it is now. Simply put, God and Christ will acknowledge our efforts for him, which are motivated out of gratitude and love on that day. On that day. It might be a private hearing, I'm not sure. Maybe just between me and the Lord, you and the Lord. He'll reveal really what was going on in our heart. Maybe it'll be before everybody. It, but, it, but it's where God has the honor. For a lack of better expression, when he says, well done, daughter. Well done, son. Welcome into the joy of your master. Come, come in. But what did I do? When I was hungry, you... When I was thirsty, when I was naked when I was jailed. But I, I didn't know I was doing that for you. To the least of my brothers, you did that for me. Let me tell you something now. No born-again believer cannot do good works. You cannot. If there's no good works following you, please repent and accept Christ now. It's part of being a Christian to love other believers. Not perfectly. But with God's grace, we do that. And the believer on this day will have the reward. You want to know what a reward is? Let me tell you, this is what I think it is. The reward and satisfaction of hearing it from Christ's own face. From Christ's own lips. From with Christ's own words. When he says your personal name in a way you've never heard your name before. From God himself. Well done, my daughter. Well done, my son. But I didn't do that. I had, a, I had a couple of loaves. I had a few fish. Doesn't it feel like that's what we do for Christ sometimes? Isn't it like no matter what we do, all it is like, I got a couple of loaves for you, God. That's all I have. I showed up. I opened up the door. I put on the sound. I, I, I said hello to a couple of saints. I made a couple of phone calls. Well done, daughter. Well done, son. You think that's better than putting 15 hours into a sermon or fasting or praying for the church? You think God looks at one and not the other? You don't think it's all the same in God's economy? Because at the end, it's not he who sows or he who waters. It's not he who sows 10 seeds, he who sows a 1,000 seeds. He who waters an hour, he who waters a lifetime. But God who gives the increase. All to the glory of God. There's no room for this rewards. And just for responding out of gratitude for what he did at the cross. I can go on. I can go on. Let me just move with some closing remarks and application. When it comes to applying the doctrine... And the text, because we spoke about the doctrine of standing before Christ. But we spoke about the text of building on the foundation of Christ. First, we're all born infants in Christ. No one's born mature. We'll follow anything. If you look at your Christian life, think about how many mistakes you made in the first two, three, four, ten years of your salvation. We go to us to and fro very easily by our emotions. By bad doctrine. We're all subject to earthly temptations of doing life and ministry the way the world.
And all our good works will also have the element of hay, wood, and straw. Listen to what one commentator says, David Pryor. He says this, quote, No doubt every Christian's work is mixed in quality. No doubt we all should have the awesome sadness of seeing much of our work burned up. Wow. Just when I thought I was doing pretty good. But I think he nails it. Paul's not saying it's those whose ministry and intentions are all bad and everybody else's intentions and ministry is all good. He's saying God will remove the hay, the straw, and the stubble from the silver, the gold, and the precious stones from each of our work. You with me? This is not about who's good. It's not about us and them. It has nothing to do with that. That's why Paul says, I don't judge myself. God will come. He'll judge me. He'll remove whatever I didn't do out of a right motive. That's what he's saying. Not you, Corinthians. God will do it. When it comes to the ministry of the church, this is very important. And I want everybody to hear this. <clears throat> we don't need to use contemporary wisdom on how the church should look or sound. As though there's some perfect 21st century model. Because that's what the 21st century model guru, church growth gurus teach. There's a certain type of church people won't come to. And there's a certain type of church people will come to. That's what the culture wants. And if the culture wants that, guess what these church gurus are doing? It's what they're giving them. It's all smoke and mirrors. Each local church has its own gifting from God for its own purpose for God. It might not look or sound like another church. If you're not techie and savvy, then someone under 50 years old might not want to come here because it doesn't look like the 21st century culture. Surely God can't be in this place. What God is looking for is faithfulness to the foundation. Christ and him crucified. That's the central tenet. Please don't miss this. Today, some add by subtraction and others subtract by addition. Do you understand what that means? Well, I'll give you an example. Some add by subtraction. They want the church to grow. So they subtract from the foundation. They don't talk about hell. They don't talk about judgment. They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about picking up your cross. They don't talk about suffering. They don't talk about anything that's offensive to the culture. Am I wrong or am I right? That is addition. Build the church up. Worldly wisdom. Because that's what every minister thinks. If someone comes into church and there's 20 people, let's say well, the anointing of God's not here. But if you go to another church where they're playing loud music and there's a thousand people, surely what? God is in this place. But little do they know a lot of these places are adding the numbers by subtracting from the foundation. They're not giving you the whole council. They're building with straw, hay, and stubble. And they're not being built up into the image of Christ. Others add or subtract by addition. Others try to manipulate people into being better givers of their tithes and their offerings by saying, God won't bless you if you're not a giver. I've heard it more than once, he'll curse the 90% if you don't give the 10%. That's a famous one amongst televangelists. If you don't give that 10%, God won't bless the 90. That's manipulation. That's manipulation. Or on witnessing, I've heard this one. If you don't witness, the blood of those people are going to be on your shoulders. That's a scary thought. I mean, I want to crawl up into a cave and hide. I fail in my... I'm a good witness, but I constantly fail. Or living holy. Don't live holy. You might lose your salvation. Or you won't get the rewards. God's going to... I've heard this one. God will show you everything you could have had. Like that's why, why don't you embarrass me in front of everybody, God? 
Now God's going to embarrass me and shame me before everybody. Motivation by guilt and fear is not in the kingdom of God. Ever. Or pastors try to be innovative to get people in the door. They'll try anything. All kinds of tricks and methods. There's mood lighting. I know a friend that goes to a 1500 people church. It was Easter. And the elders and the, and the staff got together with the pastor to determine whether they should have a real Easter bunny or someone dressed up as a 10-foot Easter bunny at the church. It's Easter. Tell me about the resurrection. And then they got a romper room in the back to get the kids in because the parents make it easy to get in and drop the kids off at the romper room and all the playground. Please, these are innovative human wisdom techniques. To get people in. I've seen cafes. I've seen luncheonettes. I've seen secular concerts. Let me close and shut up, okay? If you want people, if you want God's people to be all that God wants them to be, lay the foundation, which is Christ. And for the next 2,000 years, simply explain the foundation, encourage the foundation, expositionally tear the foundation apart, see the foundation in the book of Genesis, see the foundation in the book of Leviticus, see the foundation in the book of Isaiah, see the foundation in Malachi, see the foundation before the foundations of the world, point to Jesus Christ and him crucified before the foundations of the world, point to Jesus Christ crucified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who's in heaven right now as the God-man interceding for us because he knows we need grace and mercy all the days of our life. Teach them that and they'll give. Teach them that and they'll love. Teach them that and they'll do. You don't have to give them anything else but the foundation. Father, we thank you for the foundation. God, we bless you for the foundation. We thank you that there is a reward of hearing well done, good and faithful servant. Even with our three fish, even with our few loaves, even with our, all the times we know our limitations, we're so filled with our failures. God, I thank you that though we live amongst a performance-driven people, that we live amongst a performance-driven culture, it is not in your economy at all. I thank you, God, that grace is full and it's free. We cannot bring a greater intensity into heaven, nor can we diminish the intensity of heaven. It was perfectly paid for by Jesus Christ, the perfect servant of Yahweh. And we thank you, O oh God, that we rest in his grace. We rest in his blood. We rest in his righteousness. He's our wisdom. He's our sanctification. He's our redemption. And he's our justification. We add nothing to it, nor we can diminish from the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name.